Hey, everybody. Welcome to another episode of Just Two Dads with my uh, partner, my colleague, Mr. Sean Francis. I am Brian Altunian. Um, today, we have a special guest, somebody who we want to have on our podcast for quite some time. So glad that our, uh, <laughs> that our schedule is aligned. Uh, there are so many ways to describe our guest today. Uh, attorney, mother, wife, sister, entrepreneur. She's a founded the Special Needs Network, um, along with a number of companies. She's an incredibly successful businesswoman. You've probably seen her on, on CNN uh, as, a, as a legal analyst and uh, just a all-around amazing person. You'll love the conversation as we uh, bring Ariva into our, into our Just Two Dads family. Um, so stay tuned for another episode of Just Two Dads. Hello, everybody. I am Brian Altuni along with Sean Francis. First of all, we want to thank you if you're catching us on Facebook Live. Uh, welcome. Please leave your comments. We'll try to throw some comments up on the screen. We read them all. Um, if you're catching us on our podcast outlets, please reach out to us. If there's something of interest or a question you have or, or something that we've said that's intrigued or inspired or infuriated, maybe, um, send us an email at wearejusttwodads at gmail.com. You can catch our recording of this after the fact on our YouTube channel, Just Two Dads. And if you're down in the U.S. Virgin Islands uh, listening to us on WSTX AM radio, um, hello, family. We would love to, uh, to hear from you as well. So um, without further ado, I'm, I'm excited to have this conversation. Uh, this is going to be inspirational because our guest is, uh, is absolutely just uh, an amazing uh, an amazing figure here in, in not just here in Southern California where she's based, but but really uh, nationally and beyond. So very excited to have that, uh, have this conversation. Before we do that, I'm gonna throw it over to Mr. Sean Francis to get us started. How are you doing today, Sean, feeling good? Uh, people will probably doubt whether or not I really feel this way, because I always say it, but it is as true as it is corny. I feel um, blessed and thankful, generally speaking, to one, be alive and have the platform that we do, but especially today, our guest, is uh, someone that we've known for a while. We've all got busy, crazy schedules, so we've been trying to do this. And she is a uh, special needs warrior personified, a warrior, generally speaking, personified, as you mentioned, a legal analyst with CNN, um, a businesswoman, um, and uh, the founder of the Special Needs Network. And that is none other than Ariva Martin. Ariva, welcome. Hi, thank you guys for having me. Oh, most definitely our pleasure. Um, you know, you probably think that you just do what you do. You are who you are and you probably don't see yourself as a hero. I mean, I don't know. There's a chance that you might've set out to be one, but most heroes don't think they are heroes. And that's in part what makes them heroes. And all heroes have superpowers and those powers come from, you know, us, uh, how and where we were raised. So let's start with a little bit of, uh, with that people that are familiar with, you know, about where you are now somewhat. Um, but where and what you come from that has made you who you are today. Why don't we start with that? Yeah, I'm originally, I live in Los Angeles now, but I originally uh, was born and raised in St. Louis. I spent time in Chicago. I spent time on the East Coast in Boston and even some time in New York. So I uh, think of myself as a true Midwesterner, even though I, like I said, reside in California now. But I still have a lot of friends, have a lot of family uh, in the Midwest. I frequent there often. And mm -hmm. I think a lot of the values that are core or foundational to people who are raised in the middle of the country 
I think once they're instilled in you, they follow you no matter where you go. So uh, I True. love meeting other folks from the Midwest because we have a lot of shared experiences and uh, you know just ideology principles. Yeah, I, I didn't think that until I moved back out here because I'm originally from the U.S. Virgin Islands. I lived in Minneapolis for 10 years um, and finished high school out here prior to that, moved back out here in like 96 and I'd meet people and be like, you're not from here, are you? Here being Los Angeles. And I wouldn't know what they meant. And as strange as you might think, especially for our listeners down um, in the Virgin Islands who are listening on WSDX, there is a connection to be said between um, the um, the mindset or culture, if you will, of the Midwest uh, and values along with the Caribbean and what it I, you know, um, own up to it as being, it doesn't matter whether you're surrounded by a beautiful ocean or a, um, a couple buildings or farms. When you have a small community, there are pros and cons of that. And, and one of the pros of that is that people look out for each other and have a sense of community. So I think that, you know, that that's what that is. But there's some people that aren't from there, you know, from those areas like Brian that carry those values too. So it's nice to have those things in common. But so you uh, grew up in St. Louis. Um, tell, tell us a little bit uh, a little bit about that. Yeah, St. Louis, as you said, it's a, probably the major city in Missouri. I'm sure it's the largest city in Missouri, but it's a city of communities, lots of small communities, people very family focused, a community where people still visited with their neighbors. You could go to your neighbor's house. You could knock on the door un invited uh, places, a place where you could have a meal with your neighbor uh, without a lot of fuss. Again, very different from LA. LA is such a car city where everybody has to drive every place. So it's not likely that you're going to be stopping by a neighbor's house because that neighbor may be literally, you know, a 30 minute drive from you. So some of your closest friends in Los Angeles, because of how geographically spread out we are, uh, the relationships are different. So I found Growing up in St. Louis, you know, people that you were related to or your close friends often lived in the same neighborhood. So you could walk to their homes and you could, mm -hmm. uh, you know, spend time with them in a way that's different. I had to make the adjustment to L.A. where people don't visit regularly. And if they do, like it's because they've been invited. There's a more formal invitation process. So there are some advantages, as you said, to living in a small town. But obviously, places like St. Louis don't have. Uh, two football teams. They don't have a professional <laughs> basketball team. They don't have the kind of theater that you're going to get in a city like Los Angeles. You know, obviously, yeah. there's and other things will come to St. Louis, but uh, you're not going to get a lot of the what people may think is the excitement that you get in a big city like Los Angeles. Yeah, it's interesting you say that because when you talk about that, that makes me think of the sense of community that I try to, well, I, I try to personally, and that Brian and I try to bring about. And it's funny because with technology, we almost have no excuse for not doing that. We're so strange as human beings. This whole idea of I look out for you, you look out for me because we're all paying rent to have a room here on earth. You know, so uh, that's 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 very astute of you. Great observation there. Yeah, most definitely. So where did so so tell us a little bit about, you know, were you an only child? Did you have siblings? Um and about yeah, high school I, I have, and college. Uh, Definitely not an only child, had uh, several <laughs> brothers that I grew up with uh, and lots of extended family in St. Louis, lots of cousins and uh, other folks in what I call my village that were very important to my upbringing that I, again, am still in touch with. I have literally childhood friends that I grew up with 
that I'm friends with today. I went back to St. Louis uh, mid-September. I was fortunate and blessed to get uh, an award from the local Urban League in St. Louis. And it's their annual Women in Leadership Gala. They have about 1,000, 1,500 people there. And even though it was this huge event, it felt like I was back in my small community because so many of the people I knew growing up or I had known in high school or I even met after I moved away from St. Louis as I visit frequently. So mm-hmm. I still have lots of ties. I mean, literally people I knew when I was in kindergarten, I'm still in contact with in St. Louis. I know that's the best part about a small town, right? It's still, it's still, you still have those ties. Definitely. Yeah. Did, um, did you have, so we obviously know without having gotten into the, the whole thing yet that you, you're a servant leader. Um, you know, did you, did you have family members that did that, generally speaking, or practice law? I mean, where, where where did that come from in you? How did you get onto that path in terms of service? No, I didn't have anyone that in my family growing up that was a lawyer or that I would say was a, had an official title as a leader. I think the way people think of leaders today, like either you're leading a nonprofit or you're leading you know, some kind of organization. Uh, But I grew up around people who were definitely givers, people who were giving to their communities and who were helping at the church. I was a part of a, I grew up Catholic, so I was a part of a local parish. And my family and all the families in my neighborhood were very generous with their time and gave a lot to the church, always, you know, donating items, uh, doing the bake sales, doing the fish fries, doing all of those little Mm -hmm. things that churches have. So I definitely grew up in a community of, of givers and being Catholic, that vow of poverty that uh, nuns take and priests take, that whole concept of giving to others was uh, pretty much embedded in my community and in my family. So I, I definitely grew up seeing people volunteering a lot of their time uh, mm-hmm. to our, our organism, to our community, I'd say. Gotcha. So, and how did you? Yeah, how did so? How did, so? So? So, your path to to becoming an, an attorney and and in focusing on the civil rights uh, area. Talk. Can you talk about that a little bit? How did how did that come about for you? What, what was that inspired by? Yeah, I think it was just uh, as I got off to college and I started to meet people and started to you know myself uh, be more involved and in organized. I'll call. Uh, social movement type activities. I was very active in college in democratic politics, volunteering lots of my time for different democratic candidates. So doing door knocking and canvassing and phone banking and helping to organize students on my campus for voter registration drive. So as I became more involved with uh, what I'll call organized social justice issues, that really uh, was somewhat of the part of the impetus for me to think about law and and particularly civil rights uh, as a career for me, just that interest, uh, not ever really interested in going into politics, but always was very much interested in electoral politics and being uh, a part of the political process through, like I said, voter registration drives and organizing students and working directly for candidates and, and talking to voters and talking to constituents and helping people understand the importance of voting and the importance of exercising their right to vote. So I I could say a lot of that happened for me in college. Wow. So it would, it was, it would, it was, oh yeah. Right. Well, it would seem then, and, and we can get as personal as you do or don't want to, but it would seem that then, you know, 
in your personal life when you became a parent and you have a child that is diagnosed with autism, a parent is a natural advocate to begin with. So it seems like the combination of those two things made it very natural for you to take the path that you did. But again, not everyone becomes a warrior to the extent which you did have and continue to in the special needs realm. So tell us about, uh, you know, about that. Cause on one hand it makes sense and it's, you know, yeah, sure. Makes sense. But at the same time, it's not to be taken lightly. Yeah. And, and I don't know if all parents, I definitely, I think all parents have a natural instinct to protect their children and to do whatever they can. Most parents, I shouldn't say all, but the majority, I think, mm -hmm. you know, have an instinct to stand up for their children and to become in, in some ways their advocate. But I don't think that necessarily translates into being an advocate besides, you know, that which you would normally do for your own family. So Correct. I think a lot of, I know I've met through my work with Specialties Network, thousands of really incredible parents, mothers and fathers, grandparents included, who have done great things in terms of helping their, their kids. And, and that's where it started and that's where it ended. They weren't interested in you know, doing that work or, or taking on responsibilities outside of that for their own child. In many cases, because it wasn't practical, you know, work expectations, work responsibilities, other family members, uh, sometimes illnesses, sometimes financial situations. So I, I think this work, everybody kind of comes to it differently and lots of people find, you know, where their space is, where are they going to be most comfortable in this journey? Definitely, definitely. Um, so when you're, um, how, how old was your son um, when he was diagnosed? My son was two. Okay. All right. And then at that point, were you practicing law, um, you know, active and, you know, were you at that point? Yeah. So after I graduated from law school, I worked for about a year and a half or so with a, a Wall Street law firm that actually had a extension, an office here in Los Angeles. And I left that firm after about 12 to 18 months and I started my own law practice. So at the time of my son's diagnosis, I, already, I had already had two kids. I have two older daughters. And yes, I was a full-fledged trial attorney in my own practice, practicing law at the time I got my son's diagnosis. How old is he now? He's 20. 20. He's 20. Okay, wow. So okay. you, like Brian, while Brian's daughter wasn't diagnosed, her diagnosis was not uh, autism, you still have a diagnosis at a time. We always say the further back you go in the years with regard to our diagnosis, the more of a warrior and advocate one has to be because there's less awareness, there's less resources, and there's more mountains to climb. So kind of twofold. You had the vision to, because you're in a situation where you, you mentioned in a, a law firm, a Wall Street law firm with an extension, an office out here in Los Angeles. That's something that might be very, um, uh, a level of satisfaction for the average person. But you're looking at, no, I, I want more. I want to create. Tell us about that, if you can, just what caused you to step out from an area that most people would be comfortable remaining in to create something for yourself and others? Well, I always wanted to get involved in civil rights litigation. And the firm that I was in was uh, what we'd call like a corporate law firm. So they represented mostly major corporations and you know, they, they just didn't have a practice area that was going to ultimately be where I wanted my career to go. So at the time, it was, it was a good job to start my career 
but I quickly realized that I really wanted to pursue uh, different practice areas that were not available at this law firm. So it was really just a decision of trying to, you know, match what I wanted to do with my career with a place where I could do it. And that firm, even though it was great, I made a lot of good connections and some folks that I'm still friends with today uh, mm -hmm. that work there. Uh, it just wasn't the right match for me, given what I wanted to do with my legal career. Yeah, yeah. We and, then to, moving um, into, and then moving into yeah, to the special needs, the special needs network. We talk about that because that's that's now uh, actually you can share with us is how long has has it been? Is it 16 years? Is it 18 years? Yeah, it's going on 18 years. Uh, wow. I started that, you know, shortly after my son was diagnosed. It, it was apparent to me that there was a need for a parent centered and parent focused organization in Los Angeles. And we really center the needs of uh, underserved and under-resourced families to those in minoritized populations. So I started the Special Needs Network primarily as a parent support group was the first kind of focus. And then we moved into a lot of advocacy, policy advocacy work. And seems now, a, that seems a natural progression with yeah, your background. Yeah. Progression of, of our work. And now of that we progressed still doing our parent support still doing our policy advocacy work but have added on to that or expanded into direct services so now we are i, I think of us as a full service nonprofit organization because we have direct services we have policy advocacy and we still place a tremendous uh, focus on being a parent network a supportive network for other families mm -hmm. And we, we try to have, you know, um, we want to be uplifting here and we also want to, and, and, and we're, we're big in the areas of personal development that plays a role in the financial services business that Brian and I do and have as well. And so for the person that's sitting, the parent, let's say I'm, I, I'm envisioning the single mom that's at home thinking, look, I'm trying to get through today. Um, I know I need to worry about tomorrow, but I can't even, I can't even do that when it, whether it comes to you know, financial products and, and, and services and education for herself or starting a business of her own. And so tell us if you will, because even before we met, which is before today, but even seeing you on CNN and, you know, over the years and everything, you always appear and have an aura of, of, of uh, someone who would not know what fear is if they saw it. Now I know because you're human, that can't be true, but it never shows. <laughs> so tell no, us if you uh, definitely not true. I think everybody obviously if you're human, you you experience pain and you definitely yeah. experience fear. But I hear what you're saying about that mom or dad that's at home feeling overwhelmed and doesn't mm -hmm. know, you know, how they're going to make it, may have bills that are unpaid, may be facing uh, some setback on their job because obviously with COVID, so many things have changed in the workplace for so many parents. Uh, it, it can be daunting. And that's one of the reasons we started Special Needs Network. And we don't just focus on the child that or young adult or person that has disabilities. We focus on the entire family because we know that the family has to be healthy in order to provide the kind of support that an individual with special needs uh, requires. So we have a tremendous number of community-based services, and we have an outreach coordinator, a person who, whose full-time job in our organization is just to take calls from like that single mom 
and connect them to resources. Maybe it's food insecurity. So we have relationships with food banks and uh, you know, other sources for food. And many of the programs that we do in the community, we come with a big, almost like a farmer's market type setup where families can literally go home with bags and bags of groceries. That's uh, fantastic. Is, uh, facing, you know, homelessness. Maybe they're unhoused yeah. or that's an issue that's going to come up for them. And we, again, work with many of the housing uh, agencies in the county, in the tri-county area, and we've helped many families get into transitional housing, get shelter uh, housing, get uh, vouchers for hotels. Uh, so we have access to those kinds of resources and we are plugged in to those kinds of resources. So we would hope that that single mom that's out there or dad that may be feeling overwhelmed, hopefully they find our number, they find who we are, they've heard about us, they've seen something, or maybe even in just in a Google search that they could you know, make they, their way to us because we have the ability to help them. And sometimes we've even been able to give cash. When COVID, we were giving actual visa cards to, we had a grant from a foundation and we were able to give out uh, you know, cash cards to they could use for you know, whatever their needs were. So uh, we are in the community, boots on the ground, providing, like I said, just a complement of services from food to uh, resources around housing and jobs, a job Excellent. training opportunity. So we really hope that that mom that you just described uh, gets connected. Yeah. So two fantastic. two things I, ju I, I just thought of, uh, you know, we've done, we've been honored to be a part of um, the, uh, um, the farmer's market, the farmer's market, which he called it's it. Kind of the farmer's market, the, the, farmer's the, market. Yeah. the transformation. I, I don't know. I can't think of the event. What is the name of the event? Arriva? I'm sorry. Um, oh, especially is that work event? Yes. Transformation, the annual event. Transformation, uh -huh, right, the tools transformation, right? So we've been able to be a part of a, a part of that, and had a booth offering, you know, um, um, financial services and things of that sort. And I've never thought of this before. But two things: one, are the services then limited to? You mentioned three counties, so we're we're in the, in the Los Angeles area primarily, not nationally, correct? Well, those kinds of services where we're providing food, yes, are in the tri county area. But if you go to our website, we have a ton of services that are offered nationally. Excellent. Great. Good. That's the first question. Somebody the next just, one is somebody just asked that question on on a comment. So perfect. Yeah. Good. Absolutely. There are lots of services that are available on our website at snnla.org. So if you're in Boston, if you're in Florida, if you're in you know Chicago, you can definitely access some of those services. Good. So then here's the next question for someone that's hearing this and their sense of purpose might not be to go start a venture of their own, but they want to give. I'm assuming there are volunteer uh, opportunities available as well. Yes, there are lots of opportunities. There's donation opportunities. Uh, obviously, nonprofits work because of the generous donation of sponsors and donors, people who believe in the work uh, and who support the work through financial donations. So on our website, SNN, snnla.org, there's a donate button where people can go and you know, it could be a $5 donation or a $500,000 donation. Uh, all of it helps us work towards the mission of, of serving hundreds of thousands of families who have children with special needs. And then, as you said, there are volunteer opportunities for people who are in the Los Angeles community. You will find on our website various events that we sponsor throughout the year. 
where people can come out. We were just uh, at the Taste of Soul, the big uh, street festival that's given in South LA on Crenshaw. We were there a couple of weeks ago. We had some of our staff out, but we also had volunteers who were with our staff and they were there to help raise awareness, talk to families, uh, tell them about the, the network. And those are the kinds of events where we will often be because that's where people are. So we go where people are because we want to meet people where they are. <laughs> Excellent. Fantastic. Makes perfect sense. I was going to ask, I was going to ask a question just, and, and you may not, not know the answer. We think because Sean and I are also both in the Los Angeles area that California is incredibly progressive when it comes to policies and support of, of the special needs community. First of all, is that true? And second of all, is, 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 is California really kind of, is it, leading the path as far as you know instilling or encouraging or supporting policies in other states i don't even, even know if that how, how do you feel about kind of where we are in california california definitely has uh some policies or they've passed some laws like the lanterman act which sets up the regional center system which provides services for individuals who meet their eligibility requirements, which provides them with uh, a complement of services from the time they're deemed eligible until death. That's unique in some ways to California. Other states have some systems that are similar to that, uh, but not exactly the same. California, I would say, is in the top 10, 15 states that provide uh, access to services for individuals with disabilities in a way that most families find to be, you know, more accessible than other states. I've talked to folks in Massachusetts. Massachusetts also has a very good a network of support and lots of services that are provided. I've talked to folks who've moved here from Texas and Georgia and some Southern states who have said the services are much better in California than you know those Southern states. But with that being said, California has a huge problem uh, and it's a disparity problem. And California has for the last several decades, and it's the issue that we've been working on, I've been working on since my own son's diagnosis, continues to uh, disproportionately spend through its California regional center systems more on children, white children, than they do on children of, of color. There tends to, there continues to be uh, huge issues of access for children of color and particularly foster care children suffer a mm. great deal mm. in our California system. So. You know, California, I think, uh, has done a lot for the disabled community or the disability community, but there's a lot more. Uh, and when people think about disabilities, I, I know that what, some of the work we've been doing is trying to get people to think about disability rights in the context of social justice and social justice issues. And we work at that intersection because mm -hmm. for years the disability community was siloed from the social justice community and because of that, I think we have suffered. People have not thought of that intersectionality of individuals who might be uh, from a disenfranchised community, maybe African-American or Latinx and be disabled and what that means to be living at that, at that intersection. So I think there's a lot more work to be done in terms of what it means to be autistic and to be a black male autistic person living in an uh, under-resourced community that doesn't have high-quality medical care, that doesn't have uh, you know, clean drinking water, that has limited affordable housing, how much more right. it is for that individual to gain independence, to 
you know, find suitable employment. And we know people with disabilities continue to be disproportionately uh, impoverished. The, the poverty mm -hmm. rate for people exactly. is appalling in this country and yeah. even in this state. Uh, so go California, but not really. <laughs> yeah. yeah. And, and I'm glad you said it because actually that was, that's our, our feeling that way. We feel exactly the same way as parents that we've made, we've made a lot of progress and yet there's still a lot of, of communities that are completely under. And you have to ask questions. And here's the thing. So I'm obviously, for those that are looking, I, I'm obviously an African-American man. My wife is from Los Angeles. She's Latina. And we have had access to virtually all the services that we may want and need. Now we are, are aware that even the services that are free of charge, you know, that the regional centers provide, there's a host of services that are, that are there free of charge, but you don't get them if you don't ask for them. And you don't ask if you don't know. So there's knowledge that needs to get out. But because of the, 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 the manner in which we've been fortunate and I've seen very little, if any, challenges from a racial standpoint, um, I took for granted what was there. And I was actually going to ask you what some of those differences are because, you know, it, it was brought to my attention by um, an account on Instagram that, quite frankly, that was focused on just those things. And I think what people forget is that when a community is, is uh, marginalized and disenfranchised by, because of a diagnosis, gender, race, skin color, whatever the case may be, it all boils down to um, uh, to, to the same thing. And, um, you know, how do you, what do you, what is your thought on, from a solution standpoint, and this is a big question because it's almost like fighting city hall. I don't know if there's one answer, but what is your thought about a solution with regard to the manner in which the disproportionate spending takes place? Is that about a policy, a procedure, different candidates, all of the above? Well, you're right. It's a complex uh, web that has been woven, and to detangle it is uh, also, you know, it's a layered process. There's not a single thing that we can point to to say that this, you know, if we wave our wand, that we can magically, you know, undo what has been decades, if not, you know, centuries of systemic racism that we've been talking about since the death of the murder of George Floyd. And our systems that serve disabled people are not immune to those same systemic, you know, entrenched systemic barriers. And I think what we saw over the last week and a half with that leaked audio tape from our Los Angeles City Council members is that there is an anti-Blackness sentiment that is embedded even in what should be some of our most liberal institutions like our Democratic Los Angeles City Council. And that same anti-Blackness sentiment is embedded in most of the institutions in our state. So the first thing we have to do is be willing to acknowledge it. And there's been, I think, a certain degree of hesitation, a certain degree of timidity around just even acknowledging that that exists, which we are now in L.A. even you know, being forced to grapple with because we have in Los Angeles, I think, a particular become comfortable with this notion of people of color and thinking that there was some monolithic group called people of color that included African-Americans and Latinos and Asian-Americans, and that we were all in the same boat, rowing in the same direction. And right. what that tape revealed is, no, there's some people mm -hmm. in that boat 
want to push others out into the river and drown them, right? Uh, so yeah. they don't want them in the boat. They don't want them on the, the, the you know, water to begin with. So we have to come to grips with that and we have to take the blinders off and we can't be so naive as to think that every person that is Latinx in this country, you know, identifies with being a minority. We know that many racially ethnic groups, uh, proximity to whiteness is far more important to them. And unfortunately, we have a long history in this country from groups like the Italians to the Germans coming to this country and deciding that the way to become white is to be anti-black. So, I mean, it, it's it's very deep, <laughs> it's it's historical, and it's, it's something that I think we've not been willing to deal with. So back to DDS and how we treat the disabled in this state, you gotta start there. It, it's not, it's very fixable. We know mm -hmm. the problem. We've been if you go back to, uh, I've been talking about this as a huge expose in the LA Times, maybe it's 2006 or so, I don't remember the exact time, but there was a huge study done and this disparity, the spending on white kids in the Department of Developmental Services, you know, geographic region, kids in Orange County, kids by certain zip codes. So we've known about this for years. And uh, Brian Capra, who's a lawyer with public counsel, just did a, a report that he issued and said that the needle has not moved very much in terms of disparities uh, at the regional centers level mm -hmm. in the year. So I, I like to think that we have smart elected officials. We have elected officials who care. We have smart people that run these agencies. So what is the reason that we continue yeah these disparities. And I don't think there's anything you can point to uh, other than some systemic, uh, you know, anti-blackness, systemic, anti, you know, minority bent that has continued to be pervasive, even with those folks who consider themselves well-intentioned and well-meaning. I'm glad you said that. You know, we, we never, outside of speaking, you know, I don't know, ill of someone or being disrespectful or whatever, ever. we've never had a list of things that we just figure, oh, we're not going to touch. But on this show, we tend to be uplifting. We talk about difficult topics here and there, but we've never gone to the difficult route as much as we, as we are here today. And the fact that I, I'm feeling what I feel wonderful and fresh discomfort from it, because what happens is you just answered it's not one thing. When we have a history of operating a certain way, I've always said that America is like a um, like a family um, who at a dinner table won't speak about certain subjects. And you know when a family doesn't address certain subjects, that problem just persists. And that feeling that we're having even talking, and I know that some listeners are going to have it too, that discomfort you feel is just an, uh, uh, a sign that it needs to be in the discussion needs to be had. And the bottom line is whether it's where you live, what you earn, your gender, your skin color, a diagnosis, whatever the case is, as long as you're misrepresented or not represented, there's a tendency for you to fall behind. And if you happen to be a person that has several things going for you or not going for you with regard to, you know, the areas I just mentioned, that's, um, that, that, that's, that's, it's natural for that to take place. And these are conversations that we have to have. So I deeply appreciate that. Yeah, uh, you know, we can we can have a, a more cheerful, uplifting conversation. 
no, no, no. I like this. Which yeah, this is good. We- <laughs> this, is not gonna, this is not gonna be uplifting. This is gonna be depressing. This is gonna be de- pathetic. Uh, and so this is not going to get you uplifting because it's not. And if I gave has to happen. more stats about this, it would even depress you more. So we should talk about something happening. But here's the thing. I'm just going to say, like, I, I, I like having this conversation because if you're not in that particular community, you have may have an awareness, but you don't really have an awareness. Like, you don't really know. You, you don't, don't know, know until you know, right? Like, we, yeah, like I, mean, I said, no, I'll you're say right. the same thing. Something Sean said. Sean said, you know, he yeah. his wife, you know, he said you haven't had any problems, and you said that you won't get service if services if you don't ask for them. That's kind of a oversimplification, and, and you meant it well because that's been your experience. But that is not the experience of the typical black single mom, black married mom, the the Latina uh, mom. Absolutely. Uh, many of the regional centers throughout this state, they will ask, but the answer is and still no. get told no. And, and that's what I and that's another thing too. Look for something to be thankful for, and then take action. Because I say that when I speak with people that are like, you know, well that hasn't that that hasn't been my experience. We didn't we didn't get this. We didn't get that. And when they tell me about the 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 stuff that they deal with, you know, and here's the truth. I know that there's a, I, I believe to an extent, we get back what we put out. Okay, sure. But the other thing is there's a big crapshoot that takes place because when you pick up the phone and call these places, right, you don't know who's going to answer the phone. And you may get someone who is a warrior in action and 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 not just name, and they're going to go to bat for you no matter who you are. And then you've got people that are going to let you know that they're underworked and, under, and, uh, and underpaid based on their actions none of that makes it makes it okay and it really is a crapshoot and, and and i think that goes to one thing that we talk about which brian says a lot is like when you talk about love and empathy you got to empathize because just because your shoes fit good that doesn't mean that everybody else on the planet has a pair that fits well because that's not the case yeah yeah again i, I was gonna say it, it's interesting because the the there's always this discussion the perspective not to get political but you know, other states in the country all look at California and think, oh, California is so progressive. California is, so, you know, this, you know, such a liberal state. And while we've, again, made progress in certain areas, this is the same problems in this in this state as we do in other parts of the country. There are there are communities that are not only underserved, um, but they're uh, they're attacked, they're pigeonholed, they're set aside they're, You know, there's a there's there there we need to have these conversations again. I'm never afraid of having Sean and I have these, have had these conversations for several years um, because well, they don't are look outside our door, Brian, there are 50,000 people sleeping on the streets of Los Angeles, 30 to 40% of them are black. So we don't really have to uh, look too far to get evidence Agreed. of how the golf in this city, in particular a city like Los Angeles, where you can drive from, you know, one end of Wilshire Boulevard and literally see people living in tents in the most, you know, despicable conditions you can imagine and then drive to the other end of Wilshire Boulevard and see literally homes. I would say 50 million, but some are $200 million. I mean, so the, the rich in this town, the ultra rich uh, versus the, you know, poor, it, it's it's really huge. Yeah, they're huge, just very, huge, huge, and getting larger. I mean, you know, they're talking about lifting the rent moratoriums, and that's a huge issue for 
I have a lot of friends who are mom and pop landlords who've been decimated by the moratoriums, but you know, they're predicting maybe 50,000 more people end up on the streets when that rent moratorium is lifted in early 2023. So we have a lot of issues if we want to call ourselves the leader. If we want the country to follow where California goes. You know, we got $90 billion uh, surplus at the state level. I would think that, again, I go back to my anti-Blackness and what we got a good history lesson in listening to that leaked tape is, you know, many people are questioning, do we, have we not fixed the homeless issue because the people who are in charge of fixing it to a certain extent favored, you know, policies that did not benefit Black people who they feel were unworthy of those benefits. So there are a lot of questions. And when you talk to experts, and I'm no housing expert, but I've talked to a lot of them, they'll tell you that the problem with housing in America is race. It's not money. It's not buildings. It's none of that. It's race. It's the will. It's the political mm -hmm. will to fix the problem. And if it doesn't impact the people in power, then oftentimes in our country, those problems. And that's happen. a lack of empathy. That's yes. Like it, it, well, the, I, I, that's not my problem. I, I don't, I don't, that is, that, that doesn't affect me. Yeah. But like we always, you know, like it, it's been said injustice towards one person is injustice towards everyone. You know, and if you look at us, that's like we that we say with a special needs community alone outside of race. If you're blessed with a long life, you're going to become a member of the special needs community. So if you hear us talk about our children and diagnosis and things like that, and that's just not you, whether it's because you, you know, because of age, because of an injury, because of a family member or because of an actual diagnosis and a health situation, you live long enough, you're going to be a member of our community. Yeah, no, that's a great point. I do. I am going to tell you something happy because I don't want to end the interview without something happy. So we have this uh, incredible event coming up on November yes. 17th, uh, our 16th annual Evening Under the Stars Gala. We are super happy about this uh, event. Lots of changes. We changed our producer of the event, so it's going to look different. It's going to feel differently. We moved the location. We're uh, at this cool new spot called the Beehive that's on Central Avenue. It's the first Opportunity Zone uh, commercial project that's been built in Los Angeles. And it's a combination of office space and commercial warehouse space, but they have this great outdoor event space. And it's right on Central Avenue. So if you are either from Los Angeles or you know the history of Los Angeles, Central Avenue was the corridor that was home to some of the greatest jazz artists and jazz musicians in this country. That's right. So Duke Ellington and all of those jazz greats would come to Central Avenue and there were nightclubs up and down the boulevard where they would play. So we are- uh, you know, It was the West Coast's answer to uh, the Harlem Renaissance, so to speak, was it not? In, in yeah. many ways it absolutely is. And it all happened right on Central Avenue. So we're, we're paying uh, tribute to the past while we are, honoring our, you know, I guess we're honoring our past as we are celebrating our future. So we're honoring uh, what Central Avenue used to be. We, we have a whole uh, lineup of great jazz music from doo-wop bands to bebop jazz artists uh, to strolling violinists and, and just the best jazz that you can think of in this town uh, because we're going to be celebrating what will be the opening of the first ever comprehensive autism and developmental center that's on the campus of uh, MLK. So it's right at 120th in Wilmington. Uh, it's mm -hmm. been a long time in the making. We've been talking about it for many years now. We've had several delays with the building because of COVID and 
just some other, uh, you know, project uh, delays related to construction. But I was just over at the center a couple of weeks ago and it is uh, near completion. And we're on the second floor of this three story children, uh, children, children's wellness center. The first floor is going to be all the county of Los Angeles, so all the foster care kids in our county can come to this first floor where they can get uh, evaluation, get medical care. And then we'll be on the second floor offering everything from pediatric services to dental services through our partner, St. John's. Excellent. To all the developmental services. We're going to have a big OT gym. We're going to have a music studio, uh, a life skills kitchen. So our young wow. people can come. When is that actually going to, when is that facility? We know we know when the event is coming out just because we've got it. We've got the link on the screen there for those that are actually looking. But when is the uh, when is the facility going to be open? Yeah, we're hoping uh, grand opening uh, in either late December or early January. Right now, uh, they're finishing some final touches on the building and then building the parking lot. So Excellent. quickly as they can get that parking lot open so people will have some place to park. Uh, but it's going to be a game changer for kids who've had to go out of their community to get evaluation. Uh, we'll be offering speech therapy, occupational therapy, music therapy, uh, educational therapy, all of those services that when my son, oh. a lot of those services, I had to drive to Ventura Boulevard. I had to drive to the Valley because there weren't mm -hmm. a lot of providers in my uh, Los Angeles community. And I yeah. live in the city, so there are even fewer in South LA, which is where this clinic will be. So, and we're next door to Charles R. Drew University, which just announced that it's going to uh, accept its first full medical student class. So they will be now a full-fledged, independently accredited medical school. So we're looking to partner with the university to do some great uh, genetics research, uh, Excellent. other research. So really using those docs that want to get uh, exposed to public health, want to get exposed to behavioral health, we'll be able to do some training in our clinic. Uh, we'll be able to write some great research papers. So it, it's just going to open up the opportunity for us to really create a national model of how to deliver services to under-resourced and underserved communities with uh, competent, culturally competent and culturally centered providers. Cent mm. And that's, that's huge. And I, I want to encourage everybody. We usually talk about this a little closer to the end, even though we're getting towards the you know point where we wrap up is, just to remain curious, I mentioned, you know, uh, my family, we're a large blended family. My wife and I became legal guardians to my sister-in-law's um, four kids about um, 11 years ago, completed the adoption process about three years ago. And it was, so there was a period there where we had um, monthly, I, I don't know if it's monthly or weekly visits from a social worker, and they all went fairly smooth. And it just dawned on me one day as she's sitting down, I was like, okay, we're not perfect by any means, but our events visits were fairly uneventful. And I just got to think, I said, not all the, the visits go like this, do they? She was like, well, no. And then when I had to go to children's court, just to simply, you know, for a hearing, because uh, my wife had done that for the most part. And I just saw that environment and saw the families and the energy that's in that room. When you talk about an underserved community, generally speaking, children in foster care meet that definition I mean, tenfold. Now, if you add to that, um, sorry, <clears throat> you add to that a special needs component. And under this roof, I say this because 
to do the show from home. Under this roof, I'm familiar with every last one of those. You know, there's a lot to be said there. We just have to remain curious about each other, make a, you know, ask a lot more questions, and make a whole lot less statements. Yeah, I'm glad you had that experience, Sean. I used to work uh, out of that court. I was a court-appointed lawyer, and I would mm. take on cases from that children's court for kids who needed representation in IEPs and other matters. And having been in that court many times, yeah, it's a sobering experience to see uh, kids who have been ripped away from their families, kids, uh. mothers and fathers fighting. Uh, trying to meet the criteria to get their kids back. Maybe they've got to get sober. Maybe they've got to get a job or they've got to you know, get permanent counseling, house. whatever. Yeah. And you know, what's funny. I, I'm a, I'm, I'm more spiritual than I am religious. Right. So, but I've never, that's the only place I've ever been where I could literally feel energy and aura. Like it was like touching me, like, like something yeah. not good. And so you're right. You're right. But we're, we we are at that point. Uh, Sean, congratulations. I didn't know that you and your wife were adoptive uh, parents. I know that you had adopted four of your, I assume, are they Latinx? Are they black? What are these kids? They're, they're, they're Latinx. Yes. Yes. Yeah. yeah. So you know that the Latinx and black kids are the majority of the kids in foster care across the country and definitely in our state. And they mm -hmm. have a very difficult time getting adopted out of the system. So yeah. You know, yeah. Or taking that on. It's not an easy thing. Did you have your own biological kids? Yeah, we have. Um, we have. So we have my, uh, my wife's daughters from her uh, previous uh, marriage. Um, and then we have um, our nieces and nephews who we adopted. And then our only biological child is my son, um, Elijah. He's 16. He was diagnosed with autism at the age of three. And it's funny how things come uh, together. You know, I think he would be verbal anyway. But I don't know that he would be where he is in that regard had his cousins not come to live with us. You know, are so any of the four kids are they on the spectrum or no? None of them have been um, formally diagnosed with being okay. on the spectrum. So no. just your son, no. the sixteen-year-old. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Oh, yeah. actually, have six kids. Yeah, yeah, seven actually. Seven. seven. Yes. Six, six that live, six that live at home, but seven total. Yeah, I, I, I always say I have. Yeah. Reasons right. where I could you adopted for your wife had one and you had one. Wife no, had she had two. Wife she had, had two. two. She had two. Okay. Okay. Yeah. 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 She is thirty. Uh, okay. <laughs> All right. You got the whole. You got the grown <laughs> folks and babies. Oh yeah. All the way through. Look, I always tell people. I said, like, I got several reasons. If I didn't like my name as my last name as much as I do, and need to continue to pay homage to those that came before me. I have justifiable reasons to change my last name to Jackson, Walton, or Osmond, but I'm not going to. <laughs> What's the youngest kid? How old? Uh, 16. Oh, okay. So 30 to 16. Okay. So most yeah. of them are almost out the house. A lot of teenagers. Yeah, a lot of teenagers. Yeah. And everybody, you know, pitches in and helps. It's it's uh it it's it continues to be a great ride, but it it's also served me with the whole empathy situation. Cause when you, again, when you do what you do, that's why in the beginning I was telling you, like, you don't see yourself as a hero. You just do what you do. Your perspective is here. And that can be good in terms of trying to get a path, you know, uh, go from point A to point B, but you got to look up and look around to, you know, to appreciate what you have and then attain empathy for other people. Because, you know, we always say our biggest nightmares, the biggest ones we have are somebody else's dream. You know, that which you went to bed 
probably crying about tonight, somebody's going to bed begging and praying for it. So you just never know. We gotta we we have to look out for each other. Service to each other is the room we pay for the rent we pay for our room on earth. Great. I, I gotta get uh Brian. Brian, you only have the one daughter, right? So I have I actually have, have three kids. I have I have two daughters and my fifteen year old son too. Okay. I didn't know yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. How old are your kids? Yeah. Uh, my oldest is going to be 27 in a couple of weeks, and she's the one that was diagnosed with uh, <laughs> just learning disabilities. And I have a, a 23-year-old and then my 15-year-old son, too. Oh, okay. You got a teenager, too. So you guys have that in common. You have some teens together. We wow. do. Yes. We do. How's your yeah. daughter, 27-year-old? Is she independent? Is she functioning? Is she... Well, and that's what's always the great, she's always a great story because of the, you know, the, the, the diagnosis, the date of diagnosis, we were told all the things that she wouldn't do, couldn't do what we should expect. She not only is living independently, she lives in upstate New York. She's a teacher, uh, now a substitute teacher at school. Actually, uh, she's, she's transitioning to become a full-time teacher. She's married as a stepson. She's living independently. She's she's amazing. Absolutely that's, amazing. That's incredible. Yeah, okay. it's a good story. You're a she's granddad. A <laughs> I've never publicly <laughs> acknowledged that. Well, that yes. means you're you're grand at being a dad. Yeah. Mm-hmm. That's yeah, yeah. Wonderful. Glad to hear that about your daughter. That's so wonderful. Thank you. Yeah. I just goes to show what what the you know how capable kids are who oftentimes are labeled. We honored a young woman at our. Uh, two galas. One is the fall one coming up, but we do one in the spring. So mainly focus on women. And we honored a young woman who, when her mom, she doesn't have autism. She has a, a combination of learning disorders and some other things. And her mother was told like she was like a hopeless child. You know, kicked out of every school and was never going to really learn. And this young lady now is in college and she's kind of a micro entrepreneur and she's doing so well. And coming gala, we're going to honor two brothers, November 17th, two brothers on the spectrum. One of them has two degrees from Loyola. He graduated uh, with the dual degrees. And while on campus living independently, he started a support group for autism. He brought speakers in. He hosted panels. He was like Mm. amazing self-advocate. And his younger brother, uh, also on the spectrum, is now in college, hasn't yet completed his degree. And they now, this is, you, you won't believe this. I was their lawyer. I represented them as kids, getting them out of public school and getting them into a non-public school. Uh, and then I just became friends with the family and stayed in touch. Uh, and now both of them work for me. So. Oh my God, that's uh, fantastic. I love that story. They, they, our children will teach us, mm-hmm. right? And Absolutely. for those that, don't, that aren't a member of our community, our children will teach you. If you allow them to, if you allow yeah. them to, yeah, 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 that's great. Wow, things can happen. Absolutely, for our absolutely. Kids. Well, yep. thank you yeah. guys for uh, raising awareness and doing the work. I hope to see you on November seventeenth at the gala. I'd uh, love to have both of you there. You will enjoy it. You'll get to see more of the center. We got some great drone footage. We're going to be showing first time revealed of the center. Excellent. Be uh, honored. Dwayne and Drew Cox. We're also honoring our Lieutenant Governor, uh, Eleni Kukonakoulos. And we are honoring Amazon. Amazon has been a big supporter of special needs community across the country, but definitely of the work that we do here in Los Angeles. So amazing. Great uh, chance. That's fantastic. Thank you. Yes, yes, yes. For sure. Lieutenant Governor. Sean, 
Do you want to ask Ariva the question? That yes. Have to give her one last shot here to. Yeah. At this point in the show, you know, Ariva, you know, we asked, we, we close out with this following question, which is that, you know, our ability to change the world is based in some way, you know, great or small on our ability or willingness to change ourselves. So if you can give us one example of a thought or belief that you once uh, believed strongly, but no longer believed to be true. That I can change everyone that I meet. So in that is acceptance, right? It's learning to mm -hmm. accept people for who they are and honor them and celebrate them. And I think as women in particular, you know, we have that nurturing mother thing where we want to change everybody. But uh, mm -hmm. I had to learn it's not my job to swoop in and change people. I just have to love people where they are and hope that they love me where I am. So that's been excellent. 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 Well, this has been a, a, an amazing conversation, Ariva. As always, I'm always inspired by you. Um, thank you for being here as we wrap us wrap this up. Thank you. Um, uh, we always say, you know, again, this particular time, and Sean mentioned earlier, love and empathy is something that's, you know, always, especially now, be empathetic when you see somebody you may not know their situation. So please be empathetic. Again, be curious before you're making a judgmental statement. Ask questions. Um, be empathetic to somebody else's situation. And if you look at the, the world through the lenses of love, the world will be a much better place. So with that, I'm going to throw it to Sean to close us out. And again, Aria, great to see you. Sean? Uh, I want to just thank, as always, um, the women in my life without whom I would not be. That is my amazing mom, Jan, my wonderful wife, Laura. And again, just remember, questions are more powerful than statements. Um, we should remain more child-like and less child-ish. That is the, the key to, um, to tomorrow and to our future. And wherever you are, hearing us, watching us, we love you. Thanks, everybody.